Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome all to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. A couple of years ago, I did a two-part interview with Steve Hodell about his book, Black Dahlia Avenger. In it, he accuses his own father, George Hodell, of being the murderer of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. There is a lot of buzz about this crime right now, especially with the new miniseries, I Am the Night, starring Chris Pine, uh, set to air soon. I thought it would be great to revisit the story with a different perspective. There were, after all, many suspects in the case. I purposely, by the way, didn't re-listen to my prior Black Dahlia episodes in preparation for this interview. I wanted to look at the whole thing in a fresh way. It's a standalone episode as well, so you absolutely do not have to go listen to the earlier interview to make sense of this one. And if you're curious about my guest's feelings about the possibility of George Hodell as, as being involved in the murder in some way, I, I do ask her that question towards the end of our conversation. Anyway, let's go to the interview now. It's with great pleasure that I introduce my guest, Pew Eatwell, an award-winning author who has written, among other titles, The Dead Duke, His Secret Wife and the Missing Corpse, a historical true crime story set in Edwardian England. But it's her book, Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption, and Cover-Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder, which has made an especially big splash in the United States. And I'm speaking to her uh, from her home in Paris, France. Thank you so much for arranging some time to speak with me. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but but what was it about this case that pulled your attention all the way from Europe to sunny California? Uh, well, I was I was interested in Los Angeles for some time because um, many years ago I actually made um, a movie for British television about Charles Manson and the Manson murders, and for that. I stayed over a year and a half in Los Angeles and I, I just found the city itself absolutely fascinating because it seemed to me to combine so many contrasts and so many different views of, um, of myths of America, you know, the, the best and the worst, if you like. So I'd already been looking at 
um, crime in Los Angeles anyway. Uh, and then I, I'm a great fan of, of film noir and early Hollywood uh, films. And so that, that kind of dragged me into the Dahlia case. I didn't know that much about it to start with. I'd heard of it in the sense that I think most people have probably heard about it. It was a terrible murder of a young girl. Um, but it wasn't until I really began looking into the case that I found it so interesting. And in lots of ways, not simply the crime itself, but actually its impact on um, the culture of the time and the way it's become so much bigger than the event. It's become a, a myth, really, in its own right. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the case, I'd like to ask you about Los Angeles in the 1940s. How would you describe the city back then? Well, Los Angeles at this time in the 1940s was very interesting because you're coming, obviously, just you're coming out of the, the war, which had a huge impact on the psychology of really the Western world. And it created a kind of viciousness and this sort of a cynicism that was born from the enormous destruction of those years. At the same time, you've also got the beginnings of um, Hollywood being a centre and a magnet for lots of young women who were enjoying kind of post-war freedom, if you like, for the first time, all coming in droves to Hollywood, hoping to make it in the movies. And of course, there were loads of creepy uh, types who played on that. Uh, and so you have these Hollywood moguls who preyed on young women, who promised them great things, uh, that they would become movie stars. And then quite often they ended up as little better than prostitutes or dancing in cheap nightclubs. Um, and to some degree, of course, you could look at recent events in the States and say, well, maybe those kind of things don't really change. But it's quite interesting that this was the beginning of it all. And of course, these these floods of women coming in caused a, a moral panic. And there was a lot of commentary in the press about particularly the conservative press about, you know, these young women leaving half and home and, and coming and, and, and their lives are out of control. And of course, that murder in, in a way uh, was very useful to those elements of the press because it became a good stick to uh, brandish in front of young women. You know, this is what happens if you leave home and come to Hollywood hoping to make it as a movie star. You know, you could well end up uh, suffering the same fate as this poor woman and end up, you know, killed and thrown out onto the, the sidewalk. Yes. And although many of the stories of old Hollywood have been embellished and become almost mythological, I guess, over time, there is no question casting couches were a common thing in the, in the 40s. And there were a lot of predators roaming the studios and the streets. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As, as they are now and, and always have been. But yes, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of contemporary accounts of, uh, women, uh, young actresses hoping to make it. And almost all of them had, you know, experiences of, um, some form of uh, sexual pressure. Um, you know, Mark Hansen, who's one of the villains of the piece, as far as I'm concerned, um, he and his cronies were known when they had the, the auditions for their various uh, nightclubs. You know, they would frequently, they would get women to take their uh, top off and, you know, uh, they would uh, examine them closely before they decided which ones they were going to take. And women were expected to put up with this. So if you don't mind, let's do a little refresher here. Could could you tell the story of the discovery of Elizabeth Short's body in January of 1947? 
how she was found and what the condition of her corpse was upon that discovery. Sure. Yeah, well, it was um, the morning of January 15th, 1947, and um, a young woman called Betty Bursinger was out strolling her baby uh, in Limit Park, which at that point was um, a kind of new up-and-coming white working-class suburb of Los Angeles. There were lots of little houses that had been built really to take uh, post-war couples and starter families, and quite a lot of the uh streets were just marked out in lots they actually weren't houses built on them and she was taking a walk along the street and she saw um tossed out on the sidewalk the body of a woman and which is shocking in itself but what was even worse was that this was a naked body of a woman which had been cut in two it had been bisected so she immediately panicked and rushed to the nearest house and asked to use the telephone phoned the police and just said, look, there's a body on the sidewalk. There are kids here. Take care of it. Um, so the police arrived. And of course, at that point, um, there was a very close symbiotic relationship between the journalists and the police. And there was much more interference with police evidence and so forth by journalists than they would be allowed today. And so the journalists who were always hanging out looking for a story drove around and they picked up the radio frequency messages of the police and they heard the the message saying that there was a body down and they came rushing over and quite soon there was a whole crowd of people um where this body was on 39th and Norton in Lima Park and um, all taking photographs and tramping all over the scene and in fact some of the first pictures are of journalists arriving on the scene so the kind of thing that would you, you just couldn't imagine happening happening now and then of course the the fact that this was a young beautiful girl her body had been bisected the horror of the the case um, proved an enormous crest sensation when the headline appeared in the newspapers the following day the papers sold more editions than the the editions that had covered the bombing of Pearl Harbor it was like the biggest sensation of the case and of course there was massive pressure on the police and the press were in a race to try and find the killer. One of the interesting things about this is that there were other young women being murdered in Los Angeles during this time as well but none of those cases created the headlines that this one did. What separated the, the Black Dahlia case from the others? It's, it's really strange. I don't think anyone's really got to the bottom of, of why this case became so famous. Because, as you say, there, there were a number of, of murders of, of girls, and, and, and a lot of them were young, a lot of them were beautiful, a lot of them were Hollywood hopefuls, and there was kind of everything that you would think would uh, link it, you know, would, would, you wouldn't really see why this one was particularly so different. But for some reason, this one does seem to have acquired a mythic status. I think it was that Elizabeth Short did have a je ne sais quoi, that you can see that in the pictures. She's not conventionally beautiful, actually. Um, she's not beautiful in the sense of uh, someone like Lauren Bacall or Ingrid Bergman. She hasn't got a kind of classical beauty, but she's got something else. There's something slightly wistful about her. There's something about the way she looks out of the pictures. There's something vulnerable. I think that is the key to it, because otherwise there's no real explanation as to why this particular case has acquired such a mythic status. So two groups of investigators jumped into action. 
LAPD homicide detectives and Los Angeles newspaper reporters. Could you walk through how each group began piecing evidence together? And it's so fascinating because there are are two investigations going on at the same time, but, but there's a lot of overlap as many of these players know each other really well, right? Sure, yeah. And I mean, you know, I think this is one of the, um, you know, the, 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 the things that, that hampered the investigation from a very early stage because the police were obviously trying to interview suspects, draw up a list of people. It was difficult because uh, the girl who was murdered, Elizabeth Short, 22-year-old beautiful girl from Medford, um, you know, she had a lot of boyfriends. She saw a lot of men. So that made the potential suspect list very, very long. So the police already had a task on their hands, trying to interview her relatives, her friends, establish who she might have been hanging out with at the time that she was killed. And then, of course, you've got the press, who at that point, there was very little control, if any, on the activities of the press and on the control of gathering evidence. So And they, of course, the newspapers, in many cases, had much bigger budgets. The Hearst newspapers, they had much bigger budgets to do their investigation than the police. And so they would be rushing off as soon as there was news of a new suspect or a relative. They would be rushing off and grabbing them, paying them vast amounts of money for an exclusive interview, in lots of cases, before the police could actually take their evidence. So there's this kind of um, unholy scramble. On the one hand, the police trying to establish the evidence to build a case. And on the other hand, the newspapers just tried to grab everything they could to get the first interview to sell the most copies. And, um, you know, that caused a lot of problems from the very outset, um, really, and, and interfered with a lot of the, the process for gathering the evidence. Having said that, um, the press in some ways were more efficient than the police. Um, for example, the identification of the victim. I mean, that was the, the first problem. Obviously, this girl was found nude on the sidewalk, body cut in two. Nobody knew who, who she was. There was no identifying. There was no handbag there. There was nothing to identify who she was. So um, they had to establish who she was. And um, there was a storm at that point um, And then so there were delays in trying to get the fingerprints of the dead girl to the FBI for analysis because the FBI had the big uh, fingerprint database. Um, And it was the press. It was actually um, somebody on the Los Angeles Examiner who had the bright idea of sending uh, pictures, photographs of the girl's prints through an early form of fax machine, which was called sound photos, basically a form of fax machine. And it was through that that they managed to identify the girl as quickly as they did, because the FBI then used the photographs of the prints to identify, go through their database and identify Elizabeth Short. And um, if it hadn't been for the press picking up on that, it would have taken a lot longer to actually get the physical prints to them. Who headed up the investigation on the LAPD side? Um, Well, on the LAPD side, in the initial stages of the investigation, the case was managed by the Homicide Department. And the two lead detectives were Harry Hansen and Finus Brown. Um, And they were two very different personalities. They were both experienced um, policemen. Uh, Harry Hansen was very much the public 
face of the LAPD at the time. He was the charming, smooth talker, always beautifully turned out, you know, smart clothes. He always had a sharp suit. Um, and he was the one who was, he later actually became the spokesman for the Dahlia case, you know, until he died. Um, whenever a quote was required or something was wanted on the case, um, he was hauled out to give the interviews and so on. Um, the other detective on the case was a very different character. He was called Finus Brown, and his brother, Thad Brown, was um, quite an important player in the LAPD at the time, and in fact almost became the chief of police. He was deputy chief for a, a long time. And uh, therefore, he had a very powerful brother, but he himself was quite a strange character. The general view was that he was quite odd. He was withdrawn. And there were a lot of rumours that he was connected with organised crime. Because, of course, another thing that was, um, you know, quite different about Los Angeles at this time is that, you know, there was a very close relationship at this period between the police and the gangsters. And, you know, there was a long tradition of payoffs and corruption and so forth, particularly in, in certain departments like Vice, which would have been policing, prostitution and the organised crime. There were very close links between gangsters and the cops. And in fact, um, one witty writer actually said the gangsters were the cops or the cops were the gangsters. You couldn't really make much of a distinction between them. And Finest, so Finest Brown was rumoured to have connections with organised crime. And he was someone who wasn't generally so liked uh, as uh, Harry Hansen, who was the other detective on the case. So there are two major Los Angeles newspapers competing with each other on this case, right? And two competing reporters. Aggie Underwood working for one, a really interesting character in her own right, and Jimmy Richardson for the other. Were they rivals? Uh, yes. I mean, there's, there's, there's the newspapers were rivals. Um, Jimmy Richardson was the tough-talking uh, editor of the Los Angeles Examiner at the time, and, and he was a real tough cookie. He was originally Canadian, but um, he'd come over to the States in his youth, and he'd really worked himself up. He was a chain smoker. He was a very heavy drinker. He ultimately died from alcoholism, uh, but he was typical of the journalist at the time. I mean, it was a hard working, hard swearing, hard drinking era. You know, that's what the, the press world was like. Um, anyway, he was editor of the Los Angeles Examiner, which was a Hearthstone newspaper, and Agnes Underwood, known as Aggie Underwood, was the city editor of the Herald and Express, which was also at this point owned by the Hearst group, but was a, a different, it was an evening newspaper. And um, she is a very interesting character because she is one of the first uh, female city editors of a major national newspaper. And she came from a very, very difficult background. Her mother died when she was very young. She was passed around from foster parent to foster parent. She was basically turned out in the streets in San Francisco um, when she was very young. And she essentially pulled us, she taught herself. She got a job as a switchboard operator on a newspaper and she got given a few little pieces of, of, of writing to do and she did them so well she got given more and she basically worked from that to being a crime beat reporter and ultimately editor of the um, Herald Express and she was a tough cookie too um, I mean she came 
you know, she was in a period where women, in order to succeed, had to play a man's game. And so it's quite interesting when you look at early footage of Agni Underwood, the contrast between her and the other women, because the other women are, generally speaking, quite feminine and well-groomed and they're made up and so on. And Aggie really, you know, she had hair, which somebody said looked like an electric mixer. She made a job of looking scruffy like the male journalists. And, and her policy was like, I'll beat them at their own game. And in fact, when she became city editor, she was well known to, um, she had some crazy things she did. She had a gun on the desk, which she would fire off every so often and say, if there was a quiet day, there wasn't much news. Come on, guys, let's find some news. Don't let this newspaper die on us today. Um, and so she was, she's a real character. And in fact, you know, she was one of the people who was a joy to research and write about because it's one of these gems, people that you haven't necessarily heard about. But when you read about them, they kind of jump off the page at you because they're so alive, you know. So as the days go by, weeks even, more and more is learned about Elizabeth Short. And in the eyes of the public, she changes from a corpse to a real human being, a young woman with a story, as it's all cobbled together bit by bit. But do you think the Elizabeth Short that was portrayed in the newspapers was a factual representation of the real Elizabeth Short? No, I don't think it was. I think that, you know, Elizabeth, like many victims, female victims of crime, was a victim also, not only of a crime, but of uh, the way in which she was portrayed by the press and the image that was created of her. Because um, at the beginning of the case, when the body was found and the early facts began to emerge of this young, beautiful Hollywood hopeful from Medford, she was portrayed as this kind of beautiful, virginal, innocent creature. And so the press kind of played on on that. Um, but gradually, as more and more facts began to emerge of her dating various people, having many boyfriends, clearly not leading really what one would describe a virginal life, uh, the picture in the press then changed. And so she suddenly became the opposite. She became a tramp. She became a slut. She became a kind of um, poster child for the moral dangers of Hollywood and what happens to young women when they leave the home and go off and strike out on their own. And, of course, none of, none of those pictures was, was really correct. Um, I mean, she obviously wasn't um, a virginal uh, young lady, but on the other hand, she certainly wasn't a slut and a tramp. There is no evidence whatsoever that she was paid for uh, ever sleeping with anyone. Um, she would go out on dates. She would let the man pay for dinner and she would, you know, stay the night with them. And of course, that's what lots of girls do now and expect to do and have no judgments at all passed on them. So, you know, she definitely became a victim of um, the Hollywood portrayal of women and of the press kind of campaign against women of the day. There's no doubt about it. But there is this sadness, this emptiness, you know, a loneliness about her. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that that's almost heartbreaking? It is, it is. And I think this goes back to this reason why um, this particular case has become so famous, because there is this sense, and you get that even in the photos of her, of this kind of loss. And of, 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 of a little girl being lost and vulnerable. I mean, she had a very difficult childhood. The father abandoned 
the mother with four daughters very early on. And so they grew up in basically poverty, these girls. And um, she was always missing a father figure. And in fact, later on, if you look at the pattern of the men she was attracted to, she was attracted to men in uniform. Um, that was one of the things she went for, a lot of soldiers, a lot of sailors. Um, and there is a sense that... Um, in the men that she was attracted to, she was somehow kind of looking for this father figure that she never had. I mean, of course, that's me supposing up to a point because there's very little that's really known about her. And that's part of the problem. You know, she becomes a kind of cipher upon which everyone imposes their own story. But I mean, I think one thing everyone would agree on is that there is this sense, both in the accounts, if you read her own letters, if you look at the photographs and the accounts of, of people, that she had this kind of wistful this sense of someone who hadn't really found their way. And Jimmy Richardson, actually, the editor of The Examiner, probably put it um, as well as anyone, really. He just said she was she was sad and she was lost. And, and every town has hundreds just like her. She, she tapped into something of a lost generation, really. So the police at this point had a pretty good idea of her whereabouts up until about a week before she died, right? There are a lot of clues for investigators to pursue, including some luggage she'd left at a train station a week before her her body was discovered. Walk us through those final days for her, if you would, um, what the police learned about where she had been. Yeah, I mean, one of the puzzling things about this case from the very beginning was that um, the last anybody ever saw of Elizabeth George was on the evening of the Thursday before she was discovered, that's the evening of the 9th of January, when she was seen exiting the Biltmore Hotel, where she had been dropped off by her latest um, lover. He was a married man who had uh, courted her, and um, she had asked to be dropped off. Um, she'd been staying at Pacific Beach. She asked to be dropped off at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles because she told him she was going to meet her sister there, which was actually a lie. But she was always telling stories. That's another thing about her. She was forever inventing stories about herself and about what she was doing, which, of course, again, made things difficult for the police. But anyway, um, Robert Manley, that was the name of this married man who was her last known date, dropped her off on the Thursday at the Biltmore Hotel. And she was seen hanging around the lobby, clearly not really waiting for someone. She made some phone calls. And then the doorman of the Biltman, who was actually the last known person to see her, saw her exit the Biltmore on the Olive Street exit and then just disappear into the mist. And that was a week before her body was discovered on the 15th. Now, there was... This was very strange because the place where her body was discovered was clearly not the place where she had been killed because the body had been drained of blood and it was clearly not the actual area. She had been killed somewhere else in that intervening week between the 9th and the 15th of January and her body had then been dumped on the sidewalk. And the puzzle was, where was she during that week? Because the evidence was she had been trapped and severely tortured during this period. So there's a limited number of places where that could happen um, without people noticing. And so there was a lot of speculation as to what happened and who she was with during that missing week, because there was no concrete evidence of um, her whereabouts between that last sighting by the doorman of the Biltmore on the Thursday and the body being picked up in Lima Park the following Wednesday. 
Um, what also happened was that um, uh, Elizabeth had asked Robert Manley to leave her bags at the bus station, the Greyhound bus station downtown, before he dropped her off at the Biltmore. And those were later recovered, actually, ironically, by the Los Angeles examiner. I mean, this is another case of where something he would never have now, that this trunk was opened in the offices of the examiner in a journalist's office with the police looking on rather than in a police station under proper forensic supervision. But anyway, in that trunk, there was not much really in the way of evidence, but there were a lot of her possessions and they were crucially a number of letters which um, established um, her relations and some of her recent boyfriends. But the people mentioned in the letters were subsequently all ruled out as being involved in, in the actual crime. So the lead detectives come up with a, a female killer theory don't they <laughs> yeah i mean you know, this this all ties in with the missing week i mean there were some crazy theories um flying around um and 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 for me one of the most crazy is that there was a female killer because it just uh you know the whole thing just makes so so little sense but it it, it was a big sensation in the papers i mean the police theorizing for this was that it must have been a woman because otherwise how could she have been staying she must have been staying somewhere where there would be clothes and makeup because her bag was at the greyhound bus station so therefore she must have been staying with a woman because how could she have you know done her makeup which is obviously you know absolutely ridiculous so that was the police theory but the, the press really jumped on this because again it was part of this whole sensation and um you know the idea that there was some kind of lesbian affair involved became a, a huge thing and of course um lesbianism and homosexuality generally was one of the taboo subjects of hollywood and um you know it, it kind of tapped into again uh, a lot of um forbidden fears and concerns of the time and there was a lot there was quite a lot in the press there were various you know psychologists brought in to quack psychologists who theorized about you know what kind of a woman would have committed this crime and now a quick word from our sponsor Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steeds, four years of fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to the show. Speaking of psychologists, or psychiatrists more specifically, I guess, um, I'd like to ask you about Dr. Paul DeRiver. He had a, a pretty interesting position in the police department, didn't he? Could, could you talk about his involvement in all of this? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually pronounced DeRiver um, because he said it, it came from, you know, the, the psychiatrist's um, task to derive the truth. Yeah, but there's also a play on river because he was supposedly born on the Mississippi River. So it's kind of a play on river and derive, if you like. But anyway, uh, yeah, they, this is a very charismatic and colourful and difficult figure, Dr. Deriver. Um, he was um, a psychiatrist, one of the very early ones. I mean, this is a time when psychiatry is really in its infancy and particularly police psychiatry. And this is where the LAPD is actually amazingly in advance of the times, really, because he was actually employed by the police department as a forensic psychiatrist to interview suspects and establish psychological profiles of them and so forth. And uh, that is the first time this ever happened in the States. And he constructed um, a psychological profile of the Dahlia Killer, which is believed to be only the second that was ever done for a police department. The first was in the 1880s in London, in the case of um, the Ripper, the London Ripper. And that was a profile that was drawn up, a psychological profile drawn up by a couple of doctors. And that's generally accepted to be the first that was used by the police. But this is believed to be only the second case where this was done. And he theorized certain things about the Dahlia killer, that he felt that he was um, an intellectual, that he was uh, a sadist. Well, that was obviously clear from the nature of the wounds inflicted on, on the dead girl, that they'd been um, torture. And clearly the, the killer had a sadistic streak. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, but also certain things about his desire for publicity, which are very interesting. And, and I agree with, because if you look at the way in which the body was discovered. The way in which a killer leaves a victim is often a very interesting um, key to their personality. Because if you look at someone, for example, like Ted Bundy, the victims of Ted Bundy were always hidden. They were never left in public. 
And in fact, some of them have believed never to have been actually discovered because he wouldn't reveal where they were. Now, this is not a case like that. Here you have a body that's been bisected and displayed really in one of the most public places you can imagine and shockingly public places in a suburban uh, middle class family area. So this is someone who wanted, clearly wanted publicity and took great delight in shock and sensation. And that is a key to the person's character that Deriver uh, identified, which I think also characterised the person I believe was uh, the actual killer in this case, or at least involved in the killing. And he had had some real success. There had been a, a famous murder case years earlier called The Babes of Inglewood, um, where three little girls had been killed, and he'd profiled the killer correctly, right? So he'd already had some success in profiling when the Black Dahlia case rolled around. Absolutely, yeah. He he had actually um, identified a, a notorious killer called Albert Dyer, who had killed, as you say, it was a very famous case at the time, uh, the Three Babes of Inglewood. In fact, that was one of the early cases that Aggie Underwood uh, dealt with, and that was how she met Deriver, and the two of them actually had a very, very close friendship for the rest of their lives. Um, and uh, he had established a profile which turned out to be pretty accurate and did identify the killer in that case. And ever since then, he became the flavour of the month with the LAPD. He became their official psychiatrist. And he was basically the person who um, was called on every time there was uh, a murder which had a kind of strange psychological angle to try and analyse the killer. And he kept files and fingerprints on all these people. And in some ways, I mean, he had he had some very conservative views. He was by no means um, a, a radical, and he was quite severe in his sort of belief in in prisoners and criminals being punished. But I think some of those have been taken out of context by certain writers, because, for example, you know, he wrote of homosexuality himself as if it were an illness, which has been jumped on by a number of writers. But then it has to be remembered that that is how homosexuality was regarded at the time. That's how it was regarded generally. And in fact, his views on the treatment of homosexuals were relatively liberal in the sense that you're talking about a time when, uh, you know, there were certain schools of thought which were saying that people who were homosexual should be castrated. I mean, that was considered um, a reasonable perspective. So I think one of the problems with uh, one of the many problems with the way in which this case has been regarded and the LAPD has been regarded and the people involved have been regarded is that people tend to impose, um, you know, our 21st century values and standards on a time which was very, very different. You know, you've got to remember, and this is one thing I had to keep remembering when I was reading this case, you know, we're, we're, we're decades away from civil liberties, you know. This, this, we're in a period of segregation, of, you know, moral conservatism. You know, the, 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 the whole, the 60s has not happened. You know, the arguments and ideas of the 60s, which we take for a given, are just not there. Right. So an article is published in a magazine about the case, and Deriver is mentioned. Uh, a man named Leslie Dillon reads this article and contacts Deriver, offering some insight on who he thinks the killer might be. Is, is that an accurate summary yeah. of... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Deriver had this idea that the killer 
would want to publicize himself, that, that there was a deep driving need in the killer to identify himself with the crime and to get publicity. And so in order to trap the killer, he gave an interview in Life magazine where he analysed the killer and said the kind of person he, he, he thought he was. And he fully intended the killer to read it because he suspected that the killer was reading all the press about the crime. Um, and, and, and glorying in all the press. Because, of course, there'd been a number of communi- – we haven't discussed this yet, but there had been a number of communications with the press, some of which were definitely hoaxes, but at least one of which is, is genuine. So the killer had already shown an interest in, in the press and had revealed he was reading the articles about the crime. So anyway, Deriver did this article deliberately, and sure enough, he got contacted shortly afterwards by one – Leslie Dillon, who was uh, an unemployed bellhop in San Francisco. But there were certain things that the writer wrote in the letter that made him, triggered something in his brain, that, that just made him think there's something to this that needs to be investigated. I should add that the although the name of the, the, the person who wrote the letters, the real name was Leslie Dillon, the letters initially were not signed Leslie Dillon, they were signed Jack Sands. And that actually was a pseudonym that Leslie Dillon used throughout his life. And in fact, um, I later interviewed his relatives and one of his daughters who told me that he went by the name of Jack through the whole of his life anyway. So there's a really interesting scene in this book where Eggie Underwood, the tough, no-nonsense reporter who happens to be friends with the river, meets him in his office and they discuss the case, this Dillon character and how to proceed. And... Now, suddenly, there is a second back-channel investigation going on, running parallel with the official one run by the homicide unit. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, Aggie Underwood was great friends with the driver, and that friendship dated back to the Inglewood case that we talked about, because Aggie was the crime beat reporter on that. And she and the driver conducted their own sort of parallel investigation into the Dahlia murder. So they would regularly meet, and it's Aggie's daughter-in-law who Rilla who, who actually gave evidence about this and she wrote about this saying how Deriver and um, Aggie would meet and they would discuss possible suspects and possible theories and so on and they were absolutely sure that this Jack Sands whose real name was Leslie Dillon had something to do with it um, but the problem was that the homicide department didn't seem interested in pursuing this particular angle and that whenever they tried to push it, whenever Deriver tried to push it, it was dismissed. And so Deriver became convinced that there was a reason why the Homicide Division weren't pushing this. And so he therefore went to the chief, Chief Horrell, the chief of the LAPD at the time, and said, look, we need to investigate this. And this is when another rival department of the LAPD involved in the case became involved in the case, and that was the Gangster Squad. Now, the Gangster Squad was a separate department of the LAPD, and it was a kind of elite department which really ran on its own rules, apart from everybody else. It was supposed to be the department supervising organized crime and investigating the gangsters like Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel and so forth. And they had more or less a free reign to do what they like. And, and, and they did very unconventional things, you know. I mean, they would quite commonly, you know, grab someone like Mickey Cohen's henchman and drive him up to a cliff and say, OK, if you don't tell us everything, we'll throw you off it. I mean, they were given a free reign to do that kind of thing. And anyway, 
uh, Horrell gave permission for Deriver and um, the gangster squad to do a, a parallel investigation into the Dahlia case, which the homicide department knew nothing about, except. And this is one thing interesting, because um, a lot of commentators say, oh, the gangster squad did all of this behind the back of the homicide department. But actually, the head of the, uh, the homicide department did know about it and was involved in it, Francis Kearney. It was just Harry Hansen and Finus Brown who knew nothing about it. So you have this really bizarre and I think probably unprecedented situation where there is a secret parallel investigation going on into this crime led by the gangster squad and the head of homicide. And the two officers officially leading the investigation, that's Harry Hansen and Finus Brown, know nothing about that and are doing their own investigation. You've got these two, one's the public investigation that the press know about and so forth, and the other is the secret one into Leslie Dillon. So it's a really bizarre situation. I mean, it's a really bizarre situation that nobody's really explained. You know, I come up with my own uh, explanations as to why I think that happened. Um, but, you know, it, it is a situation which is unprecedented and no one's really been able to explain why it is that that happened on this particular case. And that has to do with Mark Hansen. But maybe we can talk about him in a little bit. <laughs> so next is is what I think is one of the most interesting parts of DeRiver's investigation. His group decides to set up a meeting with Leslie Dillon. And Dillon is such a strange and compelling character. He obviously wants the attention from DeRiver, but he's also very clever at the same time and tries his best not to get too close. So suddenly DeRiver and some others are on their way to see Dylan. And I'd love it if you could talk about this road trip <laughs> that, that follows. Yeah, well, um, Deriver really, really wanted to set up a meeting with Dylan. And what he and the gangster squad wanted to do was to get Dylan and, and just get him to confess or to find out what the hell he knew about this Dahlia case, because they were convinced from the things he was saying that he knew something. Um, Dylan was very reluctant to come to Los Angeles. He didn't want to come to Los Angeles. So they agreed to meet um, in Vegas. And from Vegas, they drove down through the desert to Palm Springs. And then in Palm Springs, they stayed at um, a little motel place. And uh, the gangster squad wired up the whole place and secretly recorded what was going on. And um, there were a number of conversations between Leslie Dillon and Deriver. Now, what was said in those conversations, we don't know, because the tapes of those conversations have disappeared. And if they are or were transcripts of those conversations, we only have a few selected clips of those which have been preserved in other evidence. We don't have the full thing. But what Deriver uh, said was that Dillon basically confessed to the murder and more or less made it clear that, that he had been involved in it and revealed that he knew certain secret facts, which even the police had concealed from, from the public, because it's quite often the case in, in murder cases that, um, you know, the police will conceal certain secret key facts about the crime 
to be used in questioning witnesses, particularly in this case where you have a lot of these false confessors. This is a case where hundreds of people just for the notoriety would come forth and say they did it. And so it was quite a good way of knocking them out, saying, "Okay, if you did it, what were the secret facts? And of course, they didn't have a clue. So anyway, Dylan revealed that he knew these. Um, And so Deriva was absolutely convinced that um, that he'd done it. And so subsequently they went back to Los Angeles and they were still trying to interview him. And unfortunately, while they were doing this, Dylan managed to sail a postcard out of the window in one of the motels they were staying, uh, saying, I'm, I'm trapped by the gangster squad and driver, please help. And in another bizarre twist to this story, I mean, there's so many bizarre things, but who discovers this piece of paper in the gutter? A journalist amazingly, from Aggie Underwood's newspaper. And so the whole thing gets blown and Chief Horrell has to come out with a public statement because up till this point, nobody had a clue. No, There was nothing. No one knew this had been going on. And Chief Horrell made this um, very interesting statement where he basically said, we have found the killer. He is convinced to, he he is, sorry, he has confessed to the crime and he knew secret facts and he, he knew even facts the police didn't know. Um, and then, of course, there was an absolutely massive sensation. The press were all over it. Everybody was phoning up Dylan's mother, his father, his everyone else. Um, well, not his father, his father died, but, you know, his mother and all his relatives and so forth. Um, and then the most extraordinary thing happened um, within a couple of days of that press conference where the chief of police had actually said, we have found the killer. Dylan just gets released. That's it. The police suddenly do a total U-turn, a complete turnaround. They go, oh, I'm sorry. No, he didn't know anything. He's not. He knew nothing. He wasn't even in Los Angeles. The time he knew nothing. And Dylan just gets let go. And that's it. Now, um, Abby Underwood could not believe that, could not believe that or derive that. And so this kind of leads to a further investigation. And Aggie in particular continues hanging on to this case, trying to get to the bottom of what happened. And that's a whole other phase of the story, Um, because what Aggie basically did was she realized that the police were not going to pursue this case any further. And so Deriva and Aggie between them tried to change tack. Um, and what they did was to try and get a grand jury investigation into the case um, so that with the hope that that would, you know, uncover what had happened. And so that became the next big phase of this, which was the build up to the grand jury investigation at the end of 1949 into the Dahlia case and the gathering of evidence for that investigation. So through this series of conversations Dr. DeRiver has with Dylan, the detail that Dylan revealed to the doctor, not previously made public, had to do with a a tattoo that had been cut from her body, right? And placed somewhere. Right. Um, The the tattoo had been inserted into a part of the victim's body. That was never revealed to, uh, obviously, it would never have been published in the press at that time anywhere. I mean, there's no way that kind of information, even if it had been made public, would have been published in the press. But that was one of the secret facts that, according to Deriver, Dylan knew. He knew what had happened to that rose tattoo that had been cut out. But there were also other facts, and this is interesting because Horrell at the press conference said that there were other facts that the police 
didn't even know about. And I speculate as to what I think those might have been at the end of my investigation. Yeah. So when this group, including Dylan, finally gets to California, it it starts to get really sketchy and weird, (laughs) Uh, beginning with their trip to, uh, what what was it called, the the A1 trailer park? Uh, Yes, um, that, okay, that incident, yes. I mean, the A1 trailer park is um, a, a trailer park where Dylan was known to have stayed. And in the process of the investigation, Deriver wanted to take Dylan there to, to see, you know, if he would get any react. Because part of the, the thing they were trying to do when they got to Los Angeles was to recreate the scenario of the crime because he was, as a psychiatrist, he was trying to see what reaction that would get from Dylan. So they actually drove him to the scene of where the body was discovered. And according to the reports of both Deriver and one of the gangster squad members who was there, uh, J.J. O'Mara, um, you know, Dylan reacted very strangely when he came on the scene of the crime. He seemed to go dizzy and he, he, he became almost sick. And he certainly reacted in a very strange way, which wouldn't, which suggested that somehow he might have been implicated in it. It certainly wasn't the reaction you'd expect from someone who definitely hadn't a clue about, about the place. Um, then that's the A1 trailer park, though. That is a place where Dylan was known to have stayed in 1946, which is the year before Elizabeth died. Um, and um, uh, did uh, O'Mara, JJ O'Mara and Deriver took him there with the idea of trying to establish from the records um, whether he'd been there at the time when Elizabeth Short was also staying in the same area. And interestingly, when they got there, Dylan got out the car and rushed into the booth, um, the entrance before them. And when they arrived, they saw that he was busy erasing entries in the in, in the register. Um, and there's conflicting evidence from people um, as to when he did stay there. But there is a line of evidence. There are people who were at the camp at the time who said that they saw Dylan there with a dark haired girl um, about the time when Elizabeth Short was also in that area. The trailer park was in the Long Beach area. It's the area she was at that time in the autumn of 1946. Now, that was quite interesting because um, Dylan's wife at the time, his first wife, was a natural blonde. So there's no way that the girl he was with would have been her. And the only other evidence or possibility was a woman much, much older in her 40s at the time. And so um, couldn't possibly have been a young black haired girl. So, you know, you do have this evidence of Dylan popping up with um, a young black haired girl in the, in, in the documents, which is quite strange, given the fact that he always denied that he knew her. And there is also this other figure that Dylan is suggesting was the real murderer uh, Jeff Connors. Deriver had a, a theory on Connors. Is that right? Yes. Um, in fact, in Dylan's original letter, which was signed off as Jack Sands, the one that sent Deriver off, triggered him in the first place, um, he doesn't actually say that he's the person who committed the crime. He says he knows the person who committed it and that it was a friend of his that he met in San Francisco. And this friend turns out to be Jeff Connors, who was um, another kind of rather 
shifty type who didn't seem to have any particular job. He was supposedly an actor in Hollywood at the time, an out of work actor, but he was he was clearly a failed actor who was basically working as a utilities man in the movies. And he's the friend that Dylan blamed for um what what for the for the murder effectively. And um Deriver's theory was that um you know that Dylan was basically displacing the culpability onto this other person so that he could say give details of the murder. But again it's typical of this strategy that Dylan used um which is that you know to to give the details but say, well actually it wasn't me, it was somebody else who did it, who told me about it. So that was that was that was the way that Dylan operated through most of this was he'd give the secret facts and so forth. But he said, oh, it's not because I did it. It's Jeff Connors who did it. And he told me the secret facts. I know that there have been some people who, in trying to discredit Dr. Deriver, claim that because Connors was a real person and not in Dylan's head, it's it's proof that Deriver was a quack. But you suggest in your book that Connors was not only real, but paired up with Dylan, possibly, to kill Elizabeth Short. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I say at the end of my book, and in particular the afterward to the paperback edition, um, I think they were actually more than one person involved in this case, and that both Leslie Dylan and Jeff Connors were heavily involved. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Deriver's mistake was that he believed at the beginning that Jeff Connors was an alter ego of Leslie Dillon. In other words, he thought Jeff Connors didn't exist, that Leslie Dillon had sort of made him up as an alter ego, when in fact there was a real person called Jeff Connors. But I don't think that's a mistake that's unreasonable to make, because there's evidence that Dillon did use Jeff Connors' name. He signed into hotel rooms using Jeff Connors' name. And in fact, he used many aliases. We know as a fact from I spoke to his daughter, he called himself Jack. He's a chameleon person, Dylan. He adopts many different characters and personalities and names. That's the sort of person he is. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that he had made up the character of Jeff, Jeff Connors. The fact that he didn't, okay, well, that that was a mistake, but I don't think it's a mistake that invalidates Deriver's beliefs about Leslie Dillon's culpability. Another quick word now from a show sponsor. Let's get back now to the show. I, I believe after after reading your book that the most compelling evidence to support your theory of Dillon being the killer is the evidence that surrounds the Astor Motel. And much of this evidence is gathered by the gangster squad on the down low, after Deriver has been publicly maligned. Two or three gangster squad members who gave evidence to the 1949 grand jury, categorically saying that they interviewed witnesses at the Astor Motel who said on the morning of the 15th of January, which is the morning that Elizabeth's body was discovered, they found sheets that were bloodied um, and... uh, a huge mess. It's described as a huge mess in one of the rooms of the Astor. Um, and that included feces over the walls and apparently, I mean, just a, a complete state. And the, a, a, a several of these witnesses also gave evidence that the, a black haired girl had been seen in that motel in a drugged state 
We know that Leslie Dillon frequented that motel, and there is evidence that a shady businessman who was known to have links with the LAPD and the police called Mark Hansen, who definitely knew Elizabeth Short and had a relationship with her. We have absolute, I don't think anyone can contradict that evidence, was also seen there at the time. So we have a nexus between Leslie Dillon, Mark Hansen and Elizabeth Short, all at this motel where two or three witnesses say a huge mesh was discovered on the morning of the 15th of January. So that's a pretty large number of weird coincidences, really. Um, all of this is documented in the grand jury papers um, by documents, you know, documents and evidence given on oath, not just some person saying 20 or 30 years later to somebody. So that is very, very strange. You also have the concrete evidence that there was an exceptionally large laundry bill at the Astor Motel that very week, which is strange. Um, and then you have what, in my view, is a compelling piece of evidence. Um, the Astor Motel at that point was owned by a slightly shady couple and um, who themselves were mixed up with crime, probably, and who would have been the last people to come forth to the police and give their story, particularly if someone powerful like Mark Hansen was involved in the thing. But anyway, their daughter, who was there at the time, their name was Hoffman, the people who owned this hotel, their daughter was called Pamela. She was just a teenager at the time, but she died recently of cancer. And before she died, she recorded an interview in which she describes this. She describes this room at the Aston. Now, she doesn't identify anyone as the killer. She makes no reference to Leslie Dillon or Mark Hansen, but she says, I remember vividly this room being covered in blood. I remember my mother taking the sheets out to the incinerator, and I, I know that that is where the Black Dahlia died. Well, I find that really strange. Why would a woman who's dying of cancer I mean, she she only she died six months after giving this interview. The interview was done as a small thing. It was never sold to any international network. There was never any money exchanged. What what motive would someone have to do that other than to, to just tell the truth and put the record straight? Then on top of all of this. So this is research I did on the actual book, uh, which absolutely convinced me that the crime took place at the Astor. Um, Recently, after the book came out, um, I had an approach from a man who's actually an ex-policeman. He was a, a cop at Long Beach and his father was on the gangster squad at the time of the investigation. His father was called Dick Williams and he was a gangster squad investigator and he actually investigated the Dahlia case. And he also knew Con Keller very well, who was one of the lead gangster squad members involved in the case, who actually went and interviewed Leslie Dillon and so forth. And... Richard Williams told his son that they knew that the Dahlia was killed at the Astor. In fact, blood corresponding to her blood type had been found there, that Leslie Dillon and Mark Hansen were involved. Although there was some dispute, there was some disagreement between Con Keller and his colleague, Richard Williams, as to who actually had the biggest role, you know, Con was of the view that basically it was Mark Hansen who was the primary killer and Leslie Dillon was involved. Dick Williams thought it was Leslie Dillon who was the prime killer and Mark Hansen was involved. So there is some sort of confusion between them as to who did what. But the clear view that came through from all of this was that um, Hansen, Dillon and probably Jeff Connors killed the Dahlia at 
the Asa Motel and that the whole affair was covered up because Harry Hansen and Finus Brown had connections with Mark Hansen, the businessman. And in fact, um, Con Keller told my contact, the cop from Long Beach, that, um, you know, that shortly after the murder, both Harry Hansen and Finest Brown were seen driving around really flashy cars, which had been provided by Mark Hansen, who had a car dealership on um, Hollywood Boulevard. And in fact, they were quite annoyed because as far as they were concerned, they'd been this huge cover up and the whole case had been pulled. And here were these guys driving around in flashy cars and hanging out with all the beautiful girls who went around with Mark Hansen. Um, separate to this, another piece of information that came to me again after the book. Um, a, a man contacted me whose mother was a dancer at the Florentine Gardens, um, which was the club owned by Mark Hansen. She was apparently very, very beautiful. She was one of the golden girls who were the most beautiful show dance girls. And she said that she'd been at a party at Mark Hansen's house the week before the Dahlia's body was found. So this would have been around that Thursday, the very Thursday when she disappeared from the Biltmore. She was at the party and she wanted to go to the restroom and she wasn't sure where it was. So she went upstairs and she opened the wrong door and she opened it, it was a bedroom and there was Hanson um, having sex with Elizabeth Short. We don't know the context of that, whether that was consensual or not. But she went, oh, I'm sorry, of course, and, and rushed away downstairs. And afterwards, she asked Mark Hansen and said, who was that girl? And he said he gave her name. He said, oh, she's called Elizabeth Short. She's an aspiring actress. It's nothing. She's a nobody. Um, but shortly after that, you see, this is why this mother, this man's mother, remembered it. He, she saw the name in the papers and that this was the girl whose body had been found. And Mark Hansen called up all the showgirls and everyone who'd been at that party that night and said, if you say a word about this, that is the end of your career. And so nothing was ever said about it. And it was never discussed. But his mother told him all this later on, you know, when the Dahlia case came up on television or whatever, she would say, oh, you know what, Mark Hansen was mixed up in that. So this is extra information that's come to me from other people after the book came out, but all of it basically comes to the same thing. And, and for me, there's just too many weird coincidences. I mean, there's just too many strange, you know, why three people saying this happened at the Astor, a woman who's dying from cancer, say, records an interview saying the same thing. This guy who was a cop in Long Beach phones me up. This other man whose mother was a dancer. These are all people, I don't know who they are. I've had no contact with them. They're just contacting me. None of them, you know, have asked me for any money. So, you know, for me, that establishes in broad lines the case. What do you think the motive was for killing her? I think it was sadism and revenge. I mean, as far as Dylan was concerned, Deriver's theory, and I think that was probably correct, is that, um, you know, Dylan had an infantile penis, according to Deriver. And his theory was that, um, you know, that Elizabeth had made some comment about this. It might have been nothing, but that he took it badly and that this was a huge revenge on that. And that actually ties in with the initial letter from Leslie Dillon to, to Ryver. In this letter, he posits various motives for what he thinks the killer might have thought. And one of the things he says is that if she had mocked her killer or made light of him, that this could have 
inspired a desire for revenge and just to annihilate her completely. Um, I mean, Mark Hansen, as far as Mark Hansen is concerned, he was known to be a jealous and possessive and violent man. He had a very tempestuous relationship with Elizabeth Short. He was very possessive about her. He hated the fact that she had other boyfriends. She lived with him for a short period of time. During that time, she would have to drop all her friends off and pick them up around the block because she was too afraid for him to see them. So there's quite a lot there for, for to explain why he would have motive. Jeff Connors, we just don't know enough about him to be able to subscribe a motive, but we know that he was... Um, you know, that he was hanging around with them at the time and he's implicated really as much by his association with Dylan. You know, we can't be really that specific because we don't have the concrete evidence. But what I can say is that I am absolutely convinced that Elizabeth Short was killed at the Aston Hotel and that Leslie Dylan and Mark Hansen were involved in that. I'm absolutely convinced about that. And I set out the evidence for why that is the case in my book. Critics have claimed that one of the main reasons that Leslie Dillon couldn't have killed Elizabeth Short was because he had an alibi. He was in San Francisco, they say, working as a bellhop when the murder happened. Would you mind addressing that? Yeah, I mean, there's no actual concrete evidence of that. Because Dillon had actually been fired from his job as a bellhop. Um, in San Francisco, uh, because this is one of the things he would do. Um, this is what what um, this um, cop whose father was on the gangster squad told me they found out about Dylan was that, you know, the job as a bellhop was basically a cover for him. He was involved in organized crime. So what he would do is he would get a job as a bellhop in an expensive hotel. He would find out where the safe was, where all the jewels and valuables were kept. And then he would organize with his cronies to steal the jewels. And this happened several times that he went and worked in a hotel and then he was fired for doing this. So he'd actually been fired from a hotel uh, in January. So he doesn't surface as working anywhere until some period after that time. So there's no evidence in the record that on that day or that night, he was actually working anywhere. Um, and the other thing to remember, and this was another weird coincidence that I found, when I was investigating the case, I drove around all the various locations. And Dylan had um, an aunt who lived in Los Angeles. And she lived literally a few blocks away from the body dump site. Um, and in fact, the body dump site would have been directly on his route going back and forth downtown. So you know, he has a much closer connection in terms of, you know, uh, a physical connection with the scene. And of course, there is that report. I don't know if you recall, but there's a report that um, Elizabeth's shoe and handbag were found in a trash can uh, outside a cafe and they were turned in and they were later identified by Robert Manley, although that was then disputed by the LAPD. But Robert Manley categorically said that was her shoes and handbag. Now, that trash can was literally two blocks from Dylan's aunt's house. Literally, you could walk from one to the other in less than half a minute. So, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there is no concrete evidence that Dylan was in San Francisco at all. 
at, at the time of the murder. I mean, he was at this point in time, he was shuttling between San Francisco and Los Angeles. He had a rented place in Los, in San Francisco, but he was also working for a guy, a shady guy who ran an estate agent in Los Angeles. He had his aunt who was based in Los Angeles. His mother-in-law also lived in Los Angeles and he had a brother-in-law who also ran a cafe in Los Angeles. So, and he was one of these peripatetic people, Dylan. He was never in one place for very long. He was in Florida. He came from Oklahoma. He went to Los Angeles. He went to San Francisco. He's one of these people who's always moving around, which obviously a lot of people who commit petty crime do so you know all i can say about this period is that he was definitely not permanently based in los angeles he was regularly taking trips back and forth between la and san francisco and he had uh, a number of bases in los angeles including his aunt and mother-in-law and his aunt's place in particular was literally very close to the scene of crime and less than a block away from where this handbag and shoes were found So my final question, we're recording this interview on the anniversary of her death. There is a new miniseries coming out called I Am the Night, I believe centered on Steve Hodel's theory, who was a guest of mine a couple of years ago, that it was his father, George Hodel, who murdered Elizabeth Short. You don't really address George Hodel much in in your book. What what do you think about the idea of, of him being the killer of the Black Dahlia? Well, I mean, George Hodel was a suspect um, for the Black Dahlia killing. He was a minor suspect. The reason he became a suspect was because uh, towards the end of 1949, he was accused of um, sexually uh, assaulting his daughter, Tamar, uh, and he was brought to trial for that. And there was a huge sensation around that, Um, you know, Hollywood gynecologist accused of attacking daughter, etc., etc. And um, at that period of time, anyone who was accused of any form of sexual crime was automatically put on the possible daily list. I mean, and would have been interviewed by Dr. Driver. And that's interesting that Dr. Driver says nothing about Hodel at all. And he would have interviewed him amongst all the other people he interviewed. And um, it was a huge sensation. And then um, Tamar said something during the trial about um, the Dahlia, and that caused another huge press sensation. So there was all this stuff flying around that possible, you know, Hollywood doctor accused of this murder. Um, But I mean, I did, as I say, when I researched the book, I didn't have any preconceptions about anybody. And if I thought that Hodel had done it, I would have just said, yes, I think that uh, George Hodel did it. but I couldn't really see any evidence other than the fact that he was a suspect that he did actually do it. I mean, the most convincing, the only thing that really I find personally convincing is this quote from the transcript, because during the period January through March 1950, Hodel was secretly being recorded. George Hodel was secretly being recorded by the LAPD. Now, that was in relation to a whole bunch of things, including tax evasion and goodness knows what else. And we have a series of very garbled, they're not even transcripts, they're summaries. And there's one sentence where, and this is the big thing, the quote, um, so what if I killed the Black Dahlia and nobody could prove it now? And uh, Steve Hodel's case, as I understand it, is that that was effectively a confession on the phone. Um, 
to, to by George Hodel that he did it. Now, I just find that incredibly unlikely. Firstly, um, Hodel knew he was being recorded. If you listen to the transcripts, he was convinced, rightly, as it happened, that there was a bug. You hear him telling his housekeeper, who his poor woman, I feel sorry for her, every minute he'd say, have you checked that drawer? Have you checked this drawer? I'm sure there is, you know, there's this banging and searching and all the rest of it. Um, so he knew he was being recorded. So I honestly can't see how someone who actually knew that they were being recorded would actually confess to a notorious crime over the telephone. And secondly, as I say, this wasn't a transcript. These are just summaries. Um, and I just think that, you know, that one statement is pretty thin to base an entire case on when you look at all this other very, in my view, very compelling evidence pointing to the Aston Motel, to Mark Hansen, uh, to Leslie Dillon, um, and so forth. Um, but, you know, as I say, I don't want to enter into a slanging match. I think uh, Steve O'Dell has set out all the information he believes supports his case. Um, and, you know, I think it's up to readers to read it and decide for themselves, you know, what they feel is the most convincing. And, and for those who believe that only an experienced surgeon could have cut up her body in that way, Leslie Dillon did have some experience as an embalmer, didn't he? Yes. I mean, Leslie Dillon did allegedly work in so he would have had experience in involving in how to drain the corpse. And J.J. O'Mara, who was one of the gangster squad evidence, uh, officers, gave evidence to the grand jury saying that, you know, he overheard him discussing with Deriver the techniques for bleeding a corpse. So he knew something about anatomy. Mark Hansen himself had worked in a number of different positions. It's not very clear, not much is known about his background because he came from uh, a very poor family in Denmark and he was a self-made man, but it's quite possible that he could have worked on a low level in um, some form of butchery or so forth. He certainly worked with cattle at, at one point. So, you know, I, I don't believe that it was necessary to have a skilled surgeon in, in this particular case. I, I just don't believe that. And in fact, it wasn't. In, if you look at the FBI papers, um, it's clearly stated there that, you know, it, it wasn't requisite. It, it said, you know, it wasn't required that someone would have actual medical knowledge, but some sort of experience of anatomy is probably likely. Well, that fits Dylan's background. And, and they found a, a dog leash in Dylan's luggage, right? That was really creepy. They found a dog leash and they found shoes which weirdly, I mean, you know, shoes which weirdly were a man's size, women's shoes which were men's size shoes, which are a fairly weird thing to find. Um, and Dylan gave, um, he, he recounted to the police how he would like to drug girls um, and then he would basically sexually assault them when they were drugged. And this is another interesting point is that the witness evidence at the Astor was of a girl who was drugged um, in the womb, but of course the stomach contents of Elizabeth Short, they were sent off by the LAPD for analysis and promptly lost. So we never know, we never had the official evidence as to what was, whether she was drugged or not, and it's quite interesting that, that that's the case. Um, so again, you know, there are all these strange things, which is it, the picture of these tiny circumstantial clues, which you put together painstakingly uh, by poring over the documents and evidence. And as I say, you know, all of my evidence in my book comes from stated documentary sources, um, from court papers, from sworn evidence. 
there's nothing that's just somebody telling me something. After the book came out, various people came forth and told me things. But the actual book itself, but, and what they said supported what I say. But the, the, the key arguments and points in my book are based on the sworn testimony of officers and people given, you know, to the court and to the jury. And, and the only conclusion is either that they're correct or that all these people are lying, which I find hard to believe. You know, these people are people giving sworn evidence to the grand jury and so forth. Why, why would all these people be making it up? I can't see a motive for it. Right, right. Well, I know we're already over our, our time limit today. Um, your book, uh, for those who want to learn more about you and all of your books, where can we direct them? Uh, well, all my books are available on Amazon.com. And a lot of them are available in bookshops. The Dahlia book is certainly available generally in bookshops. If it's not actually on the shelf, you can order it. They're all available on hardback, paperback, and Kindle. Um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter. I love hearing from readers and their comments. Um, what I will say is, as I, as I, as I said to you, um, I consider myself a professional writer and not um, a daily or obsessive stroke expert. So my view is that, you know, I've researched this case and I've given my honest opinion on it. But, you know, I'm not going to devote my entire life to obsessing about it and kind of going over every single thing and arguing with people over, you know, who hold different views. I mean, for me, I feel that, you know, um, I've given my point of view and, you know, it's up to the reader to read it and to form their own judgment of what they think happened. Well, thanks so much for your time today. This, this has been great. Not at all. Thank you. Again, my guest has been Pew Eatwell. And the book, Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption, and Cover-Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.